The Network Live. News, insights, and stories right here on KNEL 95.3 FM and KNELradio.com every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Don't miss this opportunity to hear world news, insights, and stories from guests around the world. The Network Live is your pathway to connecting people and ministries. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Network Live. I'm your host, Debbie Rule. Thank you for being with us today. Today on The Network Live, we'll be hearing from Bart Millard, lead singer of Mercy Me, sharing his redemptive story that inspired the song and movie, I Can Only Imagine. Bart watched a monster become a godly man. He came face to face with his own brokenness, and he saw God transform a lifetime of hurt into a beautiful and enduring purpose. Maybe you can't imagine a loving Father, complete forgiveness, and eternal redemption. Today, learn to see yourself through God's eyes and find rest in His approval, purpose, and eternal hope. Reveal the heart of God who loves you more than you can even imagine. When my dad was in high school, he's an All-American football player. He got a full scholarship to SMU. He got homesick, hurt his knee, so he ended up coming home, getting married. I started working for the Texas Highway Department. He got hit by a semi-truck, but he's such a big guy that he didn't break any bones in his body, but he has pretty severe head damage and was in a coma for about eight weeks. When he came to from the coma, he just had these really crazy fits of rage. Like it took about 12 people to hold him down. Leather strapped him down, and I don't know how much longer he's in the hospital, but it never went away. My mom said the, the guy that went in the hospital was different than the guy that I brought home. If a commercial was too long, in the middle of a TV show he was watching, he would throw a couch end over end. He never laid a finger on my mom, but he would break things that were very important to her. And so she eventually left. Back then, whoever left, it was they were kind of to blame. Family around them kind of were like, you know, we think the boys should stay in the hometown with the rest of the family. They still saw my dad as a stable option. I tend to believe she kind of got bullied into leaving us. At this point, my dad had never been abusive towards me, and so no one really had reason to think that was going to happen. But the second that she moved away and something changed, and it was a scary childhood to say the least. Most of my life was living in fear that when it's so sporadic, you don't know what's going to set him off. You become scared of everything. If he had a bad day, he'd take it out on me. If someone cut him off in traffic, he would take a swing at me. If my dad was embarrassed in public by someone, we'd get home, he'd take it out on me. Anything would set him off, and I was just his punching bag is what it felt like. I made the honor roll or something like that. They sent home a piece of paper that I was so scared to have him sign anything that I forged the honor roll thing to say, yeah, he saw it. Well, the teachers, they told my dad, said, can you believe he'd do that? It's a good thing, but he just signed it anyway. We just wanted you to know, well, he was embarrassed that I would sign it and beat me to a pulp. If he would spank me for doing something wrong, the spankings became incredibly violent. I remember one night where I'd be, my back of my neck to the back of my knees were like a dark purple all the way down every inch of my body. And he saw what he did to me. And, 
And it's the first time I ever saw him cry. He ran out of the room. It was almost something he couldn't control. Part of me knew there would be about a 30 minutes to an hour window. Then he would call me in there and like set me on his lap and tell me how sorry he was. He always did it. I knew that if I could get through the beating, that I would see some sort of affection from my dad. And that was the only time I'd ever see it. I know of specific times to where I'd literally like did things to get in trouble because I knew the point would come to where, you know, he would see, he would love on me and say, I'm so sorry, which was like the greatest thing ever. I remember following my brother to a party and some guy walks through and says, hey, uh, he had a bottle of Scope mouthwash and said, I'll pay somebody 20 bucks and they can drink the whole bottle. Of course, I'm seventh grade. I'm like, it's mouthwash. It can't kill you. They wouldn't let you put it in your mouth. So it might make you sick, but I'll take 20 bucks. So I did it. So I drank the whole bottle of Scope and passed out immediately. Found out it was Everclear and peppermint schnapps. Should have killed me. And so me and my two or three other buddies tried to walk home. As we're walking, one of the guy's dads happens to drive through town and drives right by us. Well, he lets me sleep it off at his house. And the next morning, he's like, are you going to tell your dad or do I need to? We got to the house and I thought this is going to be the worst of them all. My dad said, do whatever. I don't care anymore. And when he said that, he meant it. I could leave the house for four days and he would never look for me. I could do whatever I wanted to. At first, it's kind of like, hey, this is kind of cool. I'm safe. But then you're incredibly alone. And it was devastating. I was so drawn to the gospel because of my situation. To hear someone say, he'll never leave you. He adores you. You're telling me that there's someone that approves of me the way that I am and that did all this stuff for me, like had me in mind. That's unheard of. There were multiple times where I'd come forward, whether it's vacation Bible school or camp. I mean, I get saved every Sunday if they let me, just because I was, I was just desperate for it. Even though I was drawn to it, my response to it was, "I've got to do all stuff to please God. He's going to walk out on me. He's going to be disappointed with me." And sometimes you start thinking, "Wait, you know, God's not much different than my dad." It's like, "Oh wait, no, He is." But my response is the same. It becomes very works-based. That if I'm good enough. The good over what outweighs the bad, and, and God's okay with me. My whole career up until probably five, six years ago was I'm doing all of this stuff because surely now God's okay with me. You know, surely this will count. I'd rather stand in front of 10,000 people than one on one because one, they can't talk back. And I can stand there and tell them all the things, not that's wrong with them, but how much God adores them but struggle with applying it to myself. It's really easy for me to talk about how much God loves you to avoid the issues that I deal with daily. And it's really easy to feel good about yourself while you're doing it. A dear friend of mine, he came into my life and was like, hey man, I, just, I don't know if you realize this, but there's nothing you can do to make Christ love you any more than he already does right now. You've worked so hard at whatever you're trying to run from or gain, whatever it is, what if he adores you now? What if our true identity is, I'm a child of the risen king who will wrestle with the flesh. I will win some and lose some, but it can't change how Christ sees me because the cross was actually enough. What if it has nothing to do with what I do? What if my identity is not wrapped up in the things that I do, but what the cross has already done? It's just a crazy concept. But I will tell you that all of a sudden, what we've called the good news for our whole life actually sounds like good news now. Because what happens is the mystery of sin begins to shrink. Because I think we spend too much time trying to please God instead of trust Him. When we truly trust that He's not going anywhere, especially for me, and that He still adores me on worst day, the worst days start to get further and 
further apart. I'm a dad of five kids now, and what I didn't expect is how many fathers I meet now that may have daddy issues from the past, but now they're kind of following suit in some ways and don't know how to kind of break the cycle. The way I deal with my kids, sometimes it reminds me of the way my dad would. I've never beat my kids, nothing like that, but the short fuse and, the just, and little things getting to me and agitated. The hardest part for me is to stop and say I was wrong and apologize. It's harder to be the gospel in our home more than any other place in the world because they see the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. For me, it's just somehow swallowing my pride and realizing I was, I was never meant to do this on my own. I've kind of learned what it means to hide the word in my heart and set my mind on things above and find myself hiding in the word. And I rely on community so much because isolation is a struggle for me. And just being able to confess this stuff to other, to dear friends of mine, to other godly men, let there be some type of healing to take place. If I ever stop voicing the things I'm struggling with, I'm in trouble because I've been there. I go to like this men's small group. Somebody asked about our relationships with our dads. And I was like, oh, I totally got this. I'm knocking this out of the park. No one can outdo me. And then this other guy's over here going, man, my dad is my best friend in the whole world. You know, good for you. But for him, he's lived his life trying to meet that standard of an amazing dad. So either way, we're both in counseling trying to figure out who we are under the shadow of our father, great or not so great. And it all comes down to understanding who we are as individuals in Christ and not just trying to live up to a, a lot of times, self-imposed standard. I was a kid that would play by myself and create these elaborate scenarios and be consumed with it for hours. I used to draw and write plays and songs. You find ways to escape reality. You know, my dad wasn't just a mean dad. He was literally the monster that was in the basement. My grandmother's first one brought attention to me that she goes, when you would tell stories and make stuff up, all I was hearing is what you were going through. The kid trying to escape from the monster and he didn't make it or he did make it. I think the irony of the song is called I Can Only Imagine. Imagination definitely got me through almost all of it. I guess it could have gone any direction as far as being creative in different avenues and stuff, but, well, the handful of good moments in my childhood are all attached to songs. Wayne Newton's Christmas, when that plays, I go back to, you know, Christmas my dad when my dad was happy. If dad's happy, everything's good. Music was connected to the good moments and the safe moments in my life. My brother had a friend that lived down the street. We were playing in the yard, and I heard this music coming out of his room and his house. And I was like, what is that? And he was like, oh, it's you 2 Unforgettable Fire. So he gave me that, and then he gave me Petra, More Power to You. And I was like, you mean this music exists, and it kind of lines up with this amazing youth group that I'm a part of? And so I became incredibly obsessed with Christian music, like, like on an unhealthy level. It just became a natural escape. If there was ever a chance to kind of express myself, it was going to be through that. Football was his life, and when he dropped out of SMU, he just became really bitter. 
don't waste your life chasing after some pipe dream. And the one thing that's more unrealistic than playing pro is being a professional singer, I guess. Really your two worst options as far as the goals you set. If I did like a high school musical or theater or any kind of music thing that I wanted to do down the road, that was a waste of time, a waste of his money in college, whatever, because you need to get a job. You're only going to hurt yourself. He was definitely bitter towards anything that seemed unrealistic. And to him, everything was unrealistic. You know, when my dad was diagnosed with cancer, he kind of started evolving into just passionately in love with Jesus. I never guessed that God would change him. I just thought, bad guy and God's my savior and never will they ever meet. I didn't want grace to be for him. I didn't trust him. He was supposed to play the villain and I'm the good guy. I'm the rescued one. And it was almost like it was not fair. It's very much like, you know, the prodigal son of like, this dude runs off, messes everything up, spins everything, and you're going to throw him a stinking party when he comes back. And sometimes you just don't want Jesus to be for him. I could forgive everybody but him. He wasn't allowed to be on the list. God was all these things I didn't have in my father. But then for him to kind of infiltrate my dad's life and not only change him emotionally, but physically, because they're saying with the frontal lobe stuff, none of that should have changed, but the temper went away. Everything went away. Everything changed. He'd fall asleep with his face in the word every night. And I could hear him praying for my brother and me. And, and I was like, what is happening? There's no audience. There's no, he's not trying to impress anybody. He's doing this to anybody in there. When I was able to let my guard down and trust that something had changed, my view of God got so much bigger and so much more intimate at the same time. He not only was my escape, but now he's fixing the problem to the point to where like, this is the godliest man I've ever known. Not being able to forgive someone and, and it kind of festering is just as damaging to ourselves as it is anything else. To hold that in, it affects every aspect of your life, whether you realize it or not. And one day you will realize it. A lot of forgiving my dad was after he passed away. And that's when I got engaged to Shannon, we got married. And then when it started affecting how I was a father or a husband or things like that, just how I dealt with things, I was like, this is unfinished. And then over time, you start realizing this is still eating me alive. He's nowhere to be found, but I'm still, I see the effects of this still in my life. And so I did have to stop and literally forgive him of things that I just thought would be buried with him. I've lived enough of my life without the ability to forgive my dad and even my mom. You know, I convinced myself just to be numb and it's not even worth bringing up. What kind of mess do I make if I bring up that I forgive you or whatever? You know, we're great now, but it took, it took longer, but it was probably in some ways more damaging than what he had done to me. Just being a third grader and your mom leaving is hard to overcome. Now I feel like I'm making up for lost time. Learning the circumstances around like my dad and like his accident, it kind of gave me a better understanding of how could he become this. It's like the more you understand, it's, it definitely helps in the process of forgiving someone. I get 
so caught up in me being the victim, I realized at some point my dad and my mom were victims. You know, my dad was a victim of a horrible accident. My mom was a victim of a horrible husband in this situation where she had to leave. And a better understanding of that definitely plays a part in the ability to forgive. I think no matter what you go through, whether it's horrific or whatever, I think the enemy loves isolation. He loves for you to go through things alone. The body of Christ is the body of Christ because it takes a village to get through this. We weren't meant to do this alone. The thing that helped me the most was finding community that you can just kind of unload on because there are some things it's hard to tell your wife or your, obviously your kids, and, but you need men to be able to say, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're going through. I think it's something that's definitely needed is where people can just just work through it and have people to love them as they are. And, you know, that'd be a start. When my dad passed away, we were leaving the gravesite, and my grandmother, she just was looking out the window and said, I can only imagine what Bub's seeing right now. It really stuck with me because I was so just eaten up by missing him that in some way it was therapeutic to consume myself with what he was seeing versus him not being around. If I had a pen in my hand, I would always doodle, I can only imagine, literally in everything I get my hands on. If I'm on hold on the phone, I would be writing that on anything. I just became obsessed with this investment in heaven, so to speak, you know, that he was now a far greater part of my future than he was my past. We needed one last song, and so they were like, hey, tomorrow's our last day in the studio. We've got to get this song done. And so I sat up all night, literally looking for a blank page to start writing anything on. Couldn't find one. Every page had, I can imagine, written in it. It was one of those moments where it's like, okay, I get it. But I was just so excited because it's, I'd never had anything like that come that quickly. And so we went in the studio the next day and, and we unpacked everything and recorded the song, like maybe two takes. And so for about a year, we never sang it live. Then we were able to camp and the speaker was like, hey, can you do that Imagine song? And we're like, we don't know it. Like, we've never played it. So while he's preaching, we're behind the curtain quietly trying to learn our own song that we'd never played live and when the curtain opened we played it and the spotlights hitting us in the face couldn't see or hear anything when we finished there was no applause nothing it was dead quiet and i remember looking at each other going we this was the worst decision ever and then when the lights came up like most of the crowd was at the altar on their knees crying and we're like what is happening and i guess we've played it every night since People were asking, like, why, why did this song do what it did? Why do you think it, it reached so many people? And I'm like, man, I think ultimately most people can agree that they hope that there's something better after this. If they've lost a loved one, they hope that they're in a better place. And I think people embrace that hope. After Imagine kind of ran its course in Christian music, there was a top 40 station. They were doing this truth or dare kind of shock jock, kind of Howard Stern kind of morning thing. And... They were doing Truth or Dare, which was supposed to be like this vulgar, perverted thing they were doing in the air, and someone called and dared them to play Imagine. Their own fans started dogging them, like, oh, it's something you won't do. So they got a copy of it, and they played it. All of a sudden, the phone started ringing off the hook. It became like the number one song on their station for like six months. Well, in that, one of the stories they told us was there was a lady that was about to take her life. She had decided to run her car off a bridge. She's listening to Wild 100. 
Imagine plays, and she gets incredibly angry at the song, so much so that she's decided to put that on hold and drive to the station to, like, how dare you play this song? It was totally messing up her plan. I don't know. In traffic, I want to say she saw a billboard of a Christian radio station and knew maybe they could explain why this dumb song is being played. Called them because the mainstream wouldn't answer. The lines were busy because people kept calling in. So she called the station she could find. Why does this song exist? How dare you? Why would you have them play to mainstream like it works that way? And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And then they kept talking, are you okay, okay? And then she's like, I just don't understand it. And then they eventually led her to Christ. That by the time she did get to the mainstream station, she hugged the guy's neck in tears and said, if you wouldn't have played that, I wouldn't be here. We had a chance to play at Fort Hood in Texas for the troops that caught Saddam Hussein were coming home. And it wasn't just them. There were several soldiers coming home. And so we played, and this one officer came up and just embraced us. We could barely understand what he was saying because he was crying so hard. And He said he lost his whole company. He's the only one to survive. And he said he spent the whole night with a loaded gun and imagined playing Phil Walkman, contemplating whether to take his life or not. And he goes, I decided it wasn't worth it. To be asked to play at Fort Hood, I'm freaking out. Like, these are like real heroes. And the last thing he said, he goes, you're, you're the biggest hero in my life to us. I remember just crying, going, no, 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 no. I'm like, I'm out of shape. I, you know, I like Doritos a lot. And like that. I was like, you're the hero. It was really overwhelming to have him say that to us and that the song kept him from doing something crazy like that. It was, yeah. I've been consumed with heaven for a very long time. You know, I don't know how it all works. Do I think that we're going to cross over Jordan and there's some streets of gold and stuff? Honestly, I probably not. I tend to believe that whatever John was seeing in Revelation was he was describing it with the most precious things he could possibly comprehend, whether it was gold or whatever he's seeing. There's no other words to put it than it looked like this. And the tools I'm given to describe things, he's describing it as best he knows how. In Ephesians, it says we've already been placed in the heavenlies, which means somehow in past tense, part of me is already there. I don't know if I ever just assumed as he's going to place us in the heavenlies or whatever, but the fact that we're already there, that if part of heaven is no more separation from Christ, then in a way, heaven's kind of begun. There, there are parts that we don't see clearly, but at the same time, we're no longer separated from Christ. And, I, and I'm not trying to say there's not a place where our loved ones are. I believe all that is, is, takes place, but... But the fact that we, nothing can take us out of the hand of Christ, that nothing's going to change, even on our worst day, we know what our outcome is as, as one of his. You know, that's, that's a pretty awesome thought that, uh, that in a way it kind of has begun. Heaven is kind of here in a, in a sense. Corinthians 2.2 says, I've determined to know nothing while I'm with you except Jesus Christ and I'm crucified. And I can't tell you how many times I've said that while getting beaten, while being abused. And the things I've gone through, just it's almost like you just kind of zone out and just keep clinging to that. This is what it's about. It's still the kind of the hope I embrace, I hold on with heaven is that, you know, no matter what gets to me, it's like I'm determined to know nothing but this. You know, whether it's thinking about my dad and what's to come and talking about heaven or whatever I'm going through now, I'm determined to know nothing 
but Christ and him crucified. I'm intrigued by this, but uncertain. And the Bible says if we believe and confess our sin and believe, then, then we can be saved. I think there's a moment when you just choose to believe, God, this is real, and I, I want you to be a part of this story and who I am. And even if we don't get the words right, I think God's faithful to see the heart and to do his part, so to speak. A day with, without having faith that there's something after this just kind of feels like a wasted day to me. And so it's just what I choose to believe. If it turns out that I'm wrong, then a better life has been lived because of it. I know what I was before and I know what I am now. I know what my dad was before, you know, encountering Christ. You can argue the semantics of it all and if God exists or whatever, but the thing that can't be argued is what he's done in my life. And it's uh, probably the most real thing I've ever seen. I think the idea of us believing that we're a part of something bigger improves our quality of life here, just believing it's not just about us. I think the idea of that it doesn't just end and we're put in the ground and that's it, how does that not impact the way you live now? I think deep down we want to believe there's something more. I have to believe that. Knowing that I'm a part of something bigger, knowing that it's worthwhile to get out of bed in the morning and tell people about the gospel rather than just some songs that have no meaning or point and things eternal just seems kind of empty to me. I love the idea of having hope and embracing the fact that I'm going to see my dad again.
imagine when all I would do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you would like to hear a rebroadcast of the network live, visit KNELradio.com or find our podcast on iTunes and Podbean.com. To follow more news, insights, and stories, follow the network live on Facebook. If you would like more information about being a guest on the network live, contact us at thenetworklive.org. The network live will be back next week at 10 a.m. right here on KNEO Radio 95.3 FM and KNEOradio.com. I'm Debbie Rule. Thank you for listening today.